Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome to the show. Today is the second part of our coverage of Emily Dickinson. I have an announcement. Um, it is going to be just me today. Susan's mother passed away last week at the end of the week. And so I am going to finish the Emily Dickinson episode by myself. And since it is breaking Susan's heart not to cover her, what if we do this? I will record and show you just for the purposes of completion, the rest of the Emily Dickinson story um, without Susan's input. And then at a later time, as she has come back, you know, and there's been a, a period of recovery, we will revisit the Emily Dickinson and re-record it with her as well. And then I will simply replace this audio. I hope you understand um, sorry, it is just going to be me. Um, my heart goes out to Susan and her family. And now, without further ado, on with the show. In part one, which we strongly suggest you go back and listen to, we took Emily Dickinson from her birth into a prominent family in Amherst, Massachusetts, through her very social childhood and early adolescence, through her discovering the power that she had with regard to her poetry and having that turn into a passion so great that she actually began to withdraw from the outside world. The person who is possibly the love of her life, her friend Susan Gilbert, has in fact married her brother, Austin, and they are established next door as a married couple. Susan, for her part, set about fulfilling the role laid out for her. She began to entertain the notable men and women of the day and produce children and in many ways become the ideal woman with a capital I and capital W. Over next door, Emily began to organize her work. She began to recopy selected work in clear handwriting in papers that she organized, laid out, and sewed together into little books. Word herbariums is what I call them. A later editor called them fascicles, which is an interesting botany reference. A fascicle is um, like a bundle of nerves or a bundle of um, veins in a plant. Emily did not call them this. There are over 800 poems in these 40 books, plus, of course, 900 or so on loose pieces of paper and even more on those famous pieces of envelope that we talked about before that the frugal housewife recommend that every household keep to use again for scrap paper. What are these poems? What are Emily Dickinson's poems? They're explorations of death, very common, and its opposite, immortality, love, nature, the identity, the soul, big issues, but using everyday, easily understood images to stand in for the bigger concepts. That's the 10 second summary of Emily Dickinson's poetry. She uses various meters. A meter, for those of you who don't know, is basically the drumbeat of syllables and accents. She used various rhyme schemes. In particular, she is famous for using 
slant rhyme, which is an approximation of a rhyme, a similar sound, words that are sort of cousins phonetically. For example, hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. So soul and all, that's considered a slant rhyme. I myself do not like rhyming poetry. And I think this is why I don't like song lyrics for the most part. You know, above, love, dove, you, too, do, bunny foo foo. Like, I don't like that. It's so expected. She, of course, used rhyme like all other poets, but I have a big admiration for the slant rhyme and all it brings to the table. She used dashes, which stood in for commas, semicolons, almost every other sort of punctuation. I will tell you, both the Amherst Academy and Mount Holyoke used grammatical textbooks that approved the use of dashes in this way. But in poetry, it was still radical. Most people use them in letters, but Emily Dickinson brought it out into the light. In fact, I think if you were to just look at poetry, not knowing anything about it, that is how you might recognize Emily Dickinson's poetry, by the dashes. Um, at least the odds are in your favor. Emily, at about this time, read an article by a writer named Thomas Higginson called Letter to a Young Contributor that was featured in the Atlantic Monthly, advising up-and-comers about publishing their work. And I quote, This American literature of ours will be just as classic a thing as European, if we do our part. If, therefore, duty and opportunity call, count it a privilege to obtain your share. So she took her nerve in her hands and sent this man, who is a perfect stranger, the following note, along with some poems. Mr. Higginson, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? The mind is so near itself, it cannot see distinctly, and I have none to ask. I enclose my name, asking you, if you please, sir, to tell me what is true. Isn't that a flowery, um, almost slant rhyme way to ask, please look over this poetry and tell me if it's any good. Well, he wrote back immediately, very intrigued, both by the poetry and her method of inquiry. Thus began a correspondence that would last for the rest of her life. It's funny, though, he quickly learned that she only took direct critique about her actual wording and concepts from only one person, and that was Sue. Sue Dickinson, um, Sue Gilbert as was. But nevertheless, the correspondence was great and she valued him for opening her mind to other concepts. And I quote, you ask important questions accidentally. Is poetry music or witchcraft? It was something to think about. Is poetry music or witchcraft? Emily Dickinson thought it was both. Later, about this communication that was so important to her, she would write to him that, you may not know this, but you saved my life. That period when she was 31, she was going through quite a bit of internal turmoil, but yet she did not publish, nor did she attempt to publish. Another correspondent, Samuel Bowles, publisher of the Springfield Republican newspaper, was another long-term correspondent, but he had the platform to sneak a few of them into publication, not with her knowledge. And I say maybe because a lot of people think that Sue Gilbert Dickinson gave those poems to him on purpose. Um, perhaps a little push. She had a murky 
tumultuous, I would say, relationship with Samuel Bowles, who was married and, and Emily knew his wife and they were friends or whatever. But on one hand, Emily was willing to write to Samuel Bowles about her honest inner turmoil. And I have to tell you, her 31st, 32nd year were not good. They were years of um, pressure, depression, sadness, I think, um, hard years for her. On the other hand, something he did or she did or said made them stop talking to each other for years Unlike Mr. Higginson, Emily and Samuel Bowles had met first in person at her brother and Sue's house, which, as I said, had turned into quite a hub of literary and political events. She did write to him once, Title divine is mine, the wife without the sign, born bridled, shrouded in a day. Now, if I were a maker of a cable series or a soap opera, I would interpret this poem as a passionate one-time thing. This is just me writing a teeny tiny little piece of a spec script. That's what I would interpret that poem as. The whole publishing question has been puzzling people for ever. Emily wrote to her cousin Lou, you and I in the dining room decided to be distinguished. It's a great thing to be great, Lou, and you and I might tug for a life and never accomplish it, but no one can stop us looking on. You know some cannot sing, but the orchard is full of birds, and we can all listen. What if we learn ourselves someday? But... I have to say to Emily, publication meant publicity. And what that meant was public. And Emily Dickinson was beginning to turn inward. As early as her mid-20s, she is described as, quote, skulking about in the background. Samuel Bowles actually called her the queen recluse. And maybe that's why she was constructing the books that I guess we're going to call fascicles. It's a, it's a name for them. Maybe because those were her own publications. They were private, but they were real. They were tangible because Mr. Higginson actually told her at this time that he was not certain that her poems were ready for publication. In fact, I think he was more diplomatic, basically saying the world was not ready for poetry like hers that wasn't easily digestible. So the poetry was not to go out into the world and Emily was not to go out into the world increasingly. But what did reach out notably was her voice and her passion and the infamous slash famous master letters that were found among her possessions when she died were just full of longing and grief and bewilderment and um, no one knows to whom they were written. Let me read you a few excerpts of these letters. And just imagine, though, like your feelings about Emily Dickinson, how she's sitting primly in a chair, doesn't have any fire to her, um, has her hair parted down the middle, you know, but then she writes letters like this. I am older tonight, but the love is the same. So are the moon and the crescent. If it had been God's will that I might breathe where you breathed and find the place myself at night, if I can never forget that I am not with you and that sorrow and frost are nearer than I. She refers to herself as Daisy in these letters. Daisy bends her smaller life to his, 
meeker every day. She cannot guess to make that master glad. A love so big it scares her, rushing among her small heart, pushing aside the blood and leaving her faint and white in the gust's arm. Daisy, who never flinched through that awful parting, but held her life so tight he should not see the wound. Tell her offense, master, if it is not so small to cancel with her life, she is satisfied. But... Punish. Do not banish her. Shut her in prison, sir. Only pledge that you will forgive sometime before the grave. Master, open your life wide and take me in forever. I will never be tired. I will never be noisy when you want to be still. I will be glad as your best little girl. Nobody else will see me but you. But that is enough. I shall not want anymore. No one knows why she wrote those. No one knows to whom she wrote those. What happened? It's intriguing. She folded the letters away and put them in a drawer. No one even knows if they are drafts, if Master, whoever he is, as a beard is mentioned, ever even got them or saw them or knew they existed or knew she even felt like that. Samuel Bowles is put forth as a probable Master, um, Mr. Higginson. It it could be anybody. Um, The thing is, Some of the language, just like when she wrote to Sue, is sort of too much for me. She was often too much for people, and people were often too much for her. Higginson had offered this advice to writers in his Atlantic article. If a person once does a good thing, society forms a league to prevent his doing another. His seclusion is gone, and therefore his unconsciousness and his leisure. A wise man must have strength to call in his resources before middle life, prune off divergent activities, and concentrate himself on the main work. And that seems like what Emily was doing. One by one, she was cutting off her ties to the outside world and starting to focus on what she saw as her life's work, her poetry. Now, here is a sad blanket to put over top of Emily's refuge in her poetry. She began to have eye trouble. She feared she was losing her sight. She was terrified of losing her connection to the written word and was sort of she thought, in a race for time. She began to write furiously. This was the period of her greatest production. And since Emily never dated her poems, historians sort of use the slapdash handwriting she used during this time in her haste to pinpoint the year of certain poems. This is very detail-oriented research. Um, I, I clap for them. <laughs> I don't know that I would have the, um, the patience Her whole 33rd year, light began to hurt her eyes. They ached all of the time and, quote, her sight became crooked. In February 1864, she traveled to Boston for a consultation with a notable ophthalmologist named Dr. Henry Willard Williams. After that initial meeting, she went back for treatment later and stayed with two cousins of hers in their boarding house for eight months of treatment. There is some evidence that she got eye drops of atropine, which leads people to believe that she may have had what is the modern diagnosis of iritis. However, there is another diagnosis of the time that is not so much given anymore called hysterical hyperesthesia, in which basically her mind, quote, produced 
morbid changes in a patient's functions. So it's psychosomatic, but not made up, if that makes any sense. Um, The doctor's point was that a fear of blindness is causing protective behaviors that themselves do cause damage, and it's like a boomerang effect. One of the signs the doctors looked for in the 19th century for the diagnosis of hysterical hyperesthesia was a history of social withdrawal. Emily herself said, perhaps death gave me an aversion for friends, striking sharp and early, for I have held them since in brittle love of more alarm than of peace. And that diagnosis, or at least the thought that the doctor was exploring that would explain the lengthy treatment of eight months. So who's to say none of these doctors' records survive? Either way, whatever the cause, whether it is physical or whether it is a stress reaction, he advocated what he called, quote, masterly inactivity, unquote. She was not to read, no embroidery, You can write only with pencil, not pen. I don't know what the difference is. No sunlight. Um, Jail, said Emily. Mm, Sure, he said. Yes. You can knit if you want. (laughs) All right. He actually was sort of famous for his kindness in his gradual reintroduction of things like light and stress and writing because his fellow doctors believed in shock therapy to fix this condition. Facing your fears a la survivor, rip off the blindfold and slap you around metaphorically, just fix yourself. What's wrong with you? But he was a kind man who took his time. I work in my prison and make guests for myself, by which she meant poems, which she wrote in pencil if she was being good. Poems like this. I've seen a dying eye run round and round a room in search of something, as it seemed. Then cloudier became, and then obscure with fog, and then be soldered down without disclosing what it be. T'were blessed to have seen. So I'm glad she had these friends to keep her company because when actual guests came to visit her cousins in the boarding house, Emily would withdraw to a bedroom. She was not up to having guests or talking to people. Her family called her um, behavior elfing it. She would hear somebody on the front patio and just vanish. And I get it. Like, I do. I get it. But they put up with it and they thought it was, if not charming, at least just part and parcel of her personality. She went home at Thanksgiving and spent most of her time in bed, not writing nor reading, just existing, really. And she went back the next year for another very, very long course of treatment. She wrote, I had a woe, the only one that ever made me tremble. It was a shutting out of all of the dearest ones of time, the strongest friends of the soul, books. The medical man said of them, avaunt, ye tormentors, down, thoughts, and plunge into her soul. Well, he might have well said, eyes, be blind, heart, be still. It was a comfort to think, she said, that there were so few real books that I could easily find someone to read me all of them. (laughs) Now, later, looking back, she recalled this period as a time of peace, sunshine, and books. So, I guess we forget (laughs) what we said in the heat of the moment, that she felt like it was jail and prison and that the world was 
not full of quality books, but full of crap. <laughs> this was also the last foray that Emily Dickinson made into the wider world after she returned back home this time from her long months long course of treatment. She never left Amherst again. The doctor wanted her to go back for a third course of treatment and she wrote him back, my papa objects because he is in the habit of me. She became known around Amherst for her reclusive behavior and she uh, is famous for dressing all in white. And it seems to be a falsehood that she always dressed in white. There are four major incidences in which a white dress is mentioned. Uh, the master letters, certainly. Do you have room for me dressed all in white? She was wearing white during her last real meeting with an outsider outside the family. She was wearing white as her burial dress. And her only surviving dress, which is in the Emily Dickinson Museum, is also white. She did not actually wear white as far as we know um, pathologically. But if you look around, the predominant color of dresses is going to be white. That was what you wore. You know, it was <laughs> easy to clean. It was cool for summer, etc. So, so maybe she did wear white a lot, but so did a lot of other women. So let's not perhaps cast her in the role of Miss Havisham wandering the town in her white dress, tearing at her hair. It was not at all like that. However, she would run away at the sound of the door, but she would sit on the stairs and listen to the conversation of the visitors that came to see her family. I find, she wrote, I need more veil. I think more distance between herself and other people. She became known as the myth of Amherst, the person that Amherst natives would talk to their visitors about around the tea table. And I was actually reminded of this period of Emily Dickinson's life of um, a phrase that Maya Angelou wrote in I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Sort of the reason why the caged bird sings. Maya Angelou wrote, His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. Now, listen to what Emily Dickinson wrote. The soul selects her own society, then shuts the door on her divine majority obtrude no more. Unmoved, she notes the chariots pausing at her low gate. Unmoved, an emperor is kneeling upon her mat. I've known her from an ample nation. Choose one, then close the valves of her attention like stone. From her own pen. Emily is the caged bird who clipped her own wings and tied her own feet. But nevertheless, she found a way to sing. Again, I say, social media would have been her saving grace. I just think she was born in the wrong time for her temperament. Emily rebelled against so much beholdenness to the weight of everyone's expectations. Genius burned. And she, as far as I'm concerned, exercised this extreme form of self-care. I think she knew what she needed and she just created it. I'm glad she had the privilege to create it through her family's wealth and... Um, tolerance of her eccentricity. Her virtual circle, however, was still very, very robust. Her in-person circle shrank significantly. Um, Carlo died in 1866 and nearly broke her heart. 
someone she did meet in person at last eight years after their initial encounter via letter, Mr. Higginson came to Amherst, especially to meet her. And it was amazing. He wrote to ask and said, sometimes I take out your letters and verses, dear friend. And when I feel their strange power, it is not strange that I find it hard to write. I have the greatest desire to see you, always feeling that perhaps if I could once take you by the hand, I might be something to you. But till then, you only enshroud yourself in this fiery mist and I cannot reach you, but only rejoice in the rare sparkles of light. She looked so forward to his visit. He knocked, presented his card, came in, was shown into the sitting room, and then he heard footsteps upstairs and she came in. A plain woman, he said, wearing a white dress with a blue shawl. She walked in and looked at him and he looked at her. Keep in mind that she and he have never met, never spoken, but have written letters every week for eight years. And instead of shaking his hand or saying hello, or isn't it nice to see you at last, or you look just like I thought you would, anything that we would say, she simply handed him two daylilies. That is just classic muse behavior or angel behavior. Or perhaps Emily Dickinson was the very, very first manic pixie dream girl. (laughs) We're such an artist. And she said, forgive me if I'm frightened. I never see strangers and hardly know what I say. Well, after just a tiny little bit, the words came out of her like lava out of a volcano. She talked and talked. And he sat and absorbed and desperately tried to remember everything she said to him to um, tell his wife later on. This is my favorite of the things she said. How do most people live without any thoughts? She said, there are many people in the world. You must have noticed them in the street. How do they live? How do they get strength to put on their clothes in the morning? (laughs) To which I say, girl, I know that is the dark side of social media that you were spared. Occasionally, Higginson would get a word in edgewise. He might ask her a question. Don't you ever have a desire to travel? Did you ever want to go out to work? Do you ever want to see people? And she said, I never thought of conceiving I could ever have the slightest approach to such a want in all future time. I feel I have not expressed myself strongly enough. So, no. Is the short answer. She gave him book reviews. If I read a book and it makes my whole body so cold, no fire ever can warm me, I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. These are the only way I know it. Is there any other way? And you know, we've all had those moments. I think when you're on a mountain looking out at the view, um... In particular, I'm recalling a time sitting on a rooftop with with lights, with a friend looking out at a city, just like these moments of just clarity and contentment and like exhilaration kind of all mixed together. Perhaps that is poetry, although I never would have thought to call it that. That feeling, however, is what I wish for all of you. I have a Pinterest board that I keep kind of secret for my son called Things I Wish for Jet. And I think a lot of it boils down to what Emily saw as poetry. Um, stuff that takes the top of your head off, metaphorically, (laughs) metaphorically. 
Later, he told some friends that Emily Dickinson reminded him a lot of Louisa May Alcott's father. Remember him? Bronson Alcott? And I am kind of shocked. I always thought of Bronson Alcott as kind of full of madness. But you know what? Uh, Maybe. Bronson and Emily did share a certain unearthly intensity. I hope to see you again sometime, he said. She said, say in a long time. Sometime is nothing. He was exhausted. (laughs) Emily is a lot. He also said she was not capable of everyday friendship. I was never with anyone who drained my nerve power so much. She was maybe a troublesome friend. She was full of um, blank spaces for other people. But I have to say, I think she was capable of being a day-to-day friend just at a distance. The myth of Amherst was actually also known for her distribution of gifts in the form of baked goods, her specialty, poems, also her specialty, and flowers. Hello, a third specialty. So she was willing to try to make people feel better, just not to their faces. She actually was pretty famous for lowering a massively forbidden treat of gingerbread out her window to some passing children as they crossed the grounds. So you see, she is a very nice person, just not all up in your business. She got to know all of the gardeners. She spent so much time out in the garden consorting with her friends, the flowers, the bees, the sunlight, um, the grass, the leaves, the wind. So the gardeners were also her friends, possibly the people that she felt the most comfortable with. I can only imagine that Similar to the way that sometimes you can get people to talk to you if you're doing something while you're talking to them, you're not looking at them. Maybe the gardeners were at work and she was at work and they could have conversations in a different way that didn't seem so eye contacty and so personal. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. was elected to Congress and went away to do his duty, and I'm sorry to say that he suffered a heart attack while giving a speech in Boston and died the same day. The family found out by telegram too late to have made it to his bedside. The entire town of Amherst shut down and eminent visitors started to come to pay their respects, and Vinny took charge. She was the hostess. She had all the details in hand, and Emily was upstairs with the door cracked open. Emily did not attend the funeral. She never, not ever, 
visited her father's grave in her entire life. She had a lot in common with this father, who once said, and I quote, My entire life has been passed in a wilderness or on an island. They shared this bond. Emily was adrift. Adrift. They clashed, she and her father, but they were kindred spirits in a curious way also. A year later, Mama had a stroke and became very, very, very ill. It was not until this period when Emily felt a bond growing between she and her mother. When she became our child, Emily wrote to a friend, the affection came. So Emily is in the house, her time largely taken up with caring for her ailing mother. And along came a childhood friend who had been pestering her for years to contribute a poem to a collection. When I say childhood friend, I meant this little girl came over at the age of five and played under the wisteria and got dirty with her, you know, like that kind of friend, really, really childhood friend who had gone on to become a noted author. And uh, her name was Helen Hunt Jackson. She was on the hunt (laughs) for a poem from Emily Dickinson. And I know that you are shy and retiring and you don't want your name out there because people will look at you and talk to you. And I get it. And this is why this project is right for you, because all the poems contributed are going to be anonymous. It's called A Mask M-A-S-Q-U-E of poets. And many prominent poets are contributing a poem to which we will ascribe no authorship because we want the public not to be burdened by having to factor in the fame and notoriety of the poets included in this book. We want people to start relying on their own judgment, on their own heart. Well, that is intriguing. Poor old Helen Hunt Jackson had to write a right for years and finally come herself to pressure her old friend. Come on now. You don't have an excuse. Your name's not going to be on it. Give me a poem. And she did. It is about trying for something and almost getting it. Success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed. To comprehend a nectar requires the sorest need. Not one of all the purple host who took the flag today can tell the definition so plain of victory as he defeated, dying, on whose forbidden ear the distant strains of triumph break agonizing clear. One of the books that I read called this poem, The Reach, the Miss, and the Poignancy of the Almost. I'm sure I do not need to point out the relevance and some might say poignancy with regard to how that sentiment applies to Emily's own life. The publisher sent her a book, a complimentary copy for herself, and she noticed with interest that there was a page in the back for purchasers of this book to guess which authors might have written it and um, note down to themselves who they thought it was. And the publisher told her that most people who guessed her poem guessed that it was written by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Isn't that a compliment? But he had not submitted a poem at all. It's amazing. This is the first time that she has had a book that has her writing in it that she hasn't sewn together, you know, a real tangible sign of having succeeded. And she really felt grateful to Helen Hunt Jackson for kind of forcing her (laughs) to doing it. Sometimes your friends just have to give you a push. Incidentally, 
I idly went to look for a copy of A Mask of Poets, and the least expensive one I could find was $1,200. So there's something to be said for souvenirs of the podcast, but that was a little beyond my price range for um, an idle purchase. I should also tell you that Helen Hunt Jackson went on to write a book called Ramona that she had hoped would be viewed as... um, Another Uncle Tom's Cabin, but this time in support of Native Americans and um, an expose of the mistreatment of them by the federal government. Interestingly, it became a massive commercial success, largely to the fact that it romanticized the Southwest exactly right when the railroads managed to get there and lots of people took off on an adventure to witness the settings that had been mentioned in the book. It has never been out of print. So, while an original edition of Ramona by Helen Hunt Jackson will still cost you over $1,000, you can get a good, nice, used copy for under $10 if you are not so particular about (laughs) um, age and edition. Tragedy struck again and again in the years immediately following the publication of Emily's poem. Her friend Samuel Bowles died. Two more literary correspondents of note that had buoyed her up in the previous years also died. And then her mother died. There was no earthly parting, Emily wrote about her mother. She slipped from our fingers like a flake gathered by the wind and is now part of the drift called the infinite. We don't know where she is, though so many tell us. Beyond that, all is silence. I have to confess that I, there are some things that Emily writes about that I would have been reluctant to say if Susan were here. Um, She and I tried to record before she left and it just really wasn't appropriate to take up her time in that way. And I did write in my notes several times preparing for that recording session, do not read live, insert later. Um, Yeah, some of these are really going to get me at the end. But let's bring it up. Let's bring it up just a little bit. Okay, so her father is gone. Her mother is gone. Emily is an adult person, possibly free of oversight for the first time in her life. And dang it, if she did not actually start a love affair here toward the end of her middle age. She engaged in a love affair with her papa's friend, Otis Philip Lord, a man uh, significantly older than she, 70 years old, 18 years older than she was. She called him, and I quote, my church. And she wrote to her friends, I seek his face so often. I confess that I love him. I rejoice that I love him. I thank the maker of heaven and earth that gave him me to love. The exultation floods me. I cannot find my channel. My creek returns to sea at thought of thee. She wrote, when the time is right, I will lift the bars and lay him in the moss. What? What? (laughs) Y'all. That is out of control for the 1880s. Good for her. Good for her is what I'm saying. 
um, I'm glad. I'm glad she found passion and and love. Susan Dickinson actually surprised them in a, a fiery embrace. Judge Lord's children, adults, of course, called Emily Dickinson a hussy with loose morals. Anyway, Emily Dickinson um, received an offer of marriage, not her first, as we recall, as she fielded at least one and possibly multiple offers of marriage, but his illness and her Frankly, her reluctance to be uprooted from home, you know, she is planted deep in that homestead, um, prevented them from getting married. Next door, her brother Austin Dickinson was also in love, but not with his wife Susan, with the very young wife of a professor at the college. Her name was Mabel Todd. Mabel Todd was from the city and she was fancy and she was dressy and she felt I do believe like Amherst was sort of beneath her kind of like Jaja Gabor in the first season of Green Acres for a little throwback TV reference she was sort of a novelty and everyone wanted her to come to their house and the Dickinsons were absolutely no exception she wrote to friends that Austin Dickinson was, and I quote, regal and magnificent, and his wife was beautiful and poised and such a lady. And all the Dickinsons really sort of fell in love with Mabel Todd and her talent at the piano. Emily, even, even though she didn't emerge from upstairs, would send down a glass of wine or some of her best flowers as a thanks for Mabel Todd's performances. Oh, Mabel Todd wanted to meet Emily Dickinson, the myth of Amherst. She could not stop writing to her friends about this this woman who was famous in town that no one ever sees and was amazing. It was romantic. So mysterious. But Mabel never met Emily Dickinson, although she certainly made an impression. She was a great painter of nature. Another thing that endeared her to Emily Dickinson, she had published stories in magazines and she and Sue next door became pretty good friends. They had a lot in common. Sue actually showed some of Emily's poems that she had to Mabel and allowed her to copy them and take them home. I find them full of power, said Mabel. But suddenly Susan Dickinson realized, hey, wait, this Mabel Todd, this married lady is flirting with my 20-year-old son and that is unacceptable. And unfortunately, something even more unacceptable happened. Austin Dickinson, Susan's husband, fell in love with Mabel Todd and they began an affair and thus began the war between the houses. I mean, the children of Sue and Austin sided with their mother. I mean, they felt that she had been wronged and she had. Vinny actually supported her brother and stopped talking to Sue. Emily, <sighs> Emily refused to sign over this plot of land that Austin had wanted to build his mistress a house on. This was a piece of land that Emily Dickinson owned and she tried to stay in the middle <laughs> and wouldn't go that far. Um, and plus, Sue has been her friend for her entire adult life. Sue, maybe even her, the love of her life. And she certainly was not going to take 
such a step against Sue. So Emily stayed the most in the middle, I think, but it was tough. But she didn't leave to go over to embrace her friend. She does not leave the house until, until Austin and Sue's eight-year-old son, who'd been out playing just days before, was taken violently and seriously ill. The doctors suspected typhoid, and he lay dying in his bedroom next door. The news was so dire, the prognosis so grim, that Emily, for the first time in 15 years, crossed off of the property through the hedge and went next door to the Evergreens. He was so ill, and uh, his appearance was so alarming that Emily panicked and left the house and went outside, threw up on the steps, and ran back to her house. That night, the little boy started to yell, open the door, they're waiting for me. Open the door, they're waiting for me. She later wrote, who? Who were waiting for him? We would give all we possess in order to know who was waiting for him. Emily was absolutely devastated. This child had been one of her favorite people on the earth. He was charming. He was loved by everyone. He was mischievous and adorable and just full of life. And his loss broke her in half. Emily wrote to her friend, her love, Sue, The first section of darkness is the densest, dear. After that, light trembles in. You asked, would I remain with you? Irrevocably, Susan, I know no other way. You know what? I say that to my own Susan, too. I'm thinking about you. Not only that, Judge Lord, her love, who had asked her to marry him, died on her 47th birthday. And I quote, after a brief unconsciousness, a sleep that ended with a smile. They had talked about this before, as his age was so much greater than her own. What, what should I do for you? If you were to die, what would you like the best for me to do? And he just said, remember me. And she wrote a poem. Go thy great way. The stars thou meetest are even as thyself. For what are stars but asterisks to point a human life? Right after Judge Lord's death, the news came that her friend, Helen Hunt Jackson, had died. The person, her tormentor, the person who had forced her into the public, at least her words, into the public to great acclaim, would no longer pressure her. She was gone. And Emily collapsed. She had as the doctor said, a revenge of the nerve, to which they prescribed a syrup of French lettuce. Fair enough, because upon research, lettuce, this plant is actually not, you know, lettuce that you get in a bag or in a hand at the grocery store. But this lettuce, which is also called opium lettuce, was used by doctors for its ingredient, lactucarium, which delivers similar effects as opium. Also used for anxiety and poor sleep. I just don't know. I would say bourbon, brandy, vodka, and tequila would be better than a syrup of French lettuce. But I 
am not a 19th century physician. I will tell you, she never fully recovered from all the blows that this year had given her. And she was in the kitchen making a cake. She was the family's baker. It was a very common thing for her to do. When she suddenly collapsed, the world went dark, she later wrote, and she didn't come to until the evening. And she looked around, everybody standing around her bed. She thought, well, now this, this is alarming. What has happened? Um, and she was so very ill. She wrote to her cousins, little cousins, called back Emily. And Emily Dickinson died on May 15th, 1886. She was only 55 years old. Bright's disease was what was written on the death certificate. However, modern analysts seem to think that she may have died of heart disease based on her symptoms. Sue came over and performed the last duties, washed her friend carefully, had a soft, soft flannel dress made. When we come into the world, we are wrapped in soft white flannel, said Sue. I think it's fitting that we should leave the world that way. Some of the last things Emily had written before her death, thank you, dear Sue, for every solace. And also, dear Sue, thank you. And she never finished. So Sue had been there even through the periods where they were perhaps a little estranged. They had a tie that never wavered. You know, they had a bond deeper than sisterhood. Perhaps true love. We'll never know. And how I wish I could read you the entirety, the entirety of the heartfelt obituary that Sue wrote for her friend in the Springfield Republican on May 18th, 1886. And since I cannot, um, since I cannot, I guess I'll just read a couple of passages and provide you a link it is the kind of obituary we would all wish from someone that knew us well. A Damascus blade gleaming and glancing in the sun was her wit. Her swift poetic rapture was like the long glistening note of a bird one hears in June woods at high noon, but can never see. Like a magician, she caught the shadowy apparitions of her brain and tossed them in startling picturesqueness to her friends, who charmed with their simplicity and homeliness as well as profundity, fretted that she had so easily made palpable the tantalizing fancies forever eluding their bungling, fettered grasp. So intimate and passionate a part of the high March sky, the summer day and bird call, Keen and eclectic in her literary taste, she sifted libraries to Shakespeare and Browning, quick as the electric spark in her intuitions and analyses, she seized the colonel instantly, almost impatient of the fewest words by which she must make her revelation. To her, life was rich and all aglow with God and immortality." So well she knew the, her subtle chemistries of her tenderness to all in the home circle, her gentlewoman's grace and courtesy to all who served in house and grounds, her quick and rich response to all who rejoiced or suffered at home or among her wide circle of friends the world over. This side of her nature was to her the real entity in which she rested. So simple and so strong was her instinct that a woman's hearthstone is her shrine. That's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot of sentiment. There's a lot of true feeling. And from someone who knew 
Emily Dickinson, the best in the entire world, there's a 360 degree view of someone who historically has been like a butterfly pinned up in her bedroom, you know, two dimensional and not well understood. So I am very glad that Sue was there to gather her memories and her perception of Emily Dickinson and put them onto paper. Emily had made plans for much of her funeral herself. Call Mr. Higginson, she said. Have him read Emily Bronte's poem for me, please. And he began with his own words. To our friend, who has just now put on immortality, and who seemed scarce ever to have taken it off. And I would just like to read... To you, the last stanza of that poem, as it is long, I will provide you a link to the entirety of that poem by Emily Bronte. And this one gets me, I'm just telling you, I'm already sort of doubting my ability to get it out. This reminds me of my own mother. This is something else I have marked not to read out loud in front of Susan. It's just the last stanza, and it means a lot. There is not room for death, nor atom that his might could render void, since thou art being and breath, and what thou art may never be destroyed. Touching. I mean, that gets me in a way a lot of poetry does not. Thanks, Emily Bronte. Before the lid of the coffin was closed, Vinnie put two heliotropes in her sister's hands and asked her sister to take those to Judge Lord. The heliotrope, in the language of flowers that our Susan um, Vollenweider is so fond of, mean devotion or eternal love. And so uh, the coffin was closed on Emily Dickinson, her white dress, and her love for Judge Lord. And although the honorary pallbearers who were professors prominent men, the president of Amherst College, took up their ceremonial positions to carry her coffin. She had requested that their services stop at the boundary of her father's property and that her friends, the gardeners who had worked beside her with her flowers for so many years, should be the ones to take her to her final resting place. Six of them carried her around the flower garden, walked through a barn behind the house, and then walked through fields of buttercups to her final resting place at West Cemetery, where she is buried. She was buried under a simple stone marked E-E-D. Although one of her nieces replaced that simple stone with a taller, more elaborate one, that gives the date that she was born and the date that she died has her full name and the phrase called back, a reference to her final letter to her cousins. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. 
When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now, the end game. As soon as Emily died, the Todds started building a house on the land that Emily Dickinson had not signed over to Austin. That plot of land didn't meet with any more resistance. If any was on Austin's side, I would imagine Mr. Todd was just resigned at this point. The house started going up in that corner of the meadow. And you would think that would be the end of it. The war between the houses has ended not with a battle, but with a hammer, a construction hammer and the building of a house. But unfortunately, a new phase of the war between the houses was about to occur. Lavinia had been asked by her sister Emily to burn her letters. That's such a common thing. We've talked about that in previous episodes, how if only we had some of the things that had been consigned to the coals, what we might have thought differently of the likes of Jane Austen or, you know, just anyone whose letters have been taken away from public sight. Everybody has a right to keep their letters to themselves, but still we have a right to mourn their loss. So she's going through the papers her sister has left behind and discovers a extraordinary cache of poems, almost 2,000 poems, unreleased to the public, the most of them, uh, unseen by human eyes, most of them, some extensive, some rewritten several times, some simply fragments on little pieces of paper. And Vinny was astonished and she was not about to burn these letters, these were the evidence of her sister's genius, the genius that the family had been nurturing and caring for up in this room for all of her life. And so Vinny didn't quite know what she should do with them. She did say later that from the very first time that she saw all these poems, she felt, and I quote, a Joan of Arc feeling about them. Like, it was her responsibility to, you know, wave the sword of Emily's poetry to the world. So she had a task. She had a job to do that she had set herself. She was now on a mission. She reached out to Sue, and Sue sort of dragged her feet a little bit. Would her friend appreciate the revelations in those poems and etc.? Well, Vinny got impatient and reached out to the last literary correspondent that her sister had left, really. She reached out to Mr. Higginson, the man who, in fact, had just spoken at her sister's funeral for some help and advice on how to get these poems published. And he... Remember, he had said that he didn't think the world was ready for her poems. He sort of demurred a little bit and said that he was too busy to take on such a project right then. So Vinny turned 
to the next person in the list, a person who was very, very eager to take on this project. And she was right next door in the meadow, Mabel Todd. Vinny later insisted during a court case that Mabel practically begged her to take on this project, whereas Mabel's position was that she graciously agreed to the unpaid administrative tasks required to do work of such breadth and depth. So somebody asked somebody. That's all I have to say about that. And Mabel had had some experience writing and certainly submitting to magazines. Um, Her success was not perhaps as great as she had wished it would be. She decided she would benefit from an experienced publisher and writer And she was actually able to persuade Mr. Higginson to come aboard the project. Mabel immediately started sort of um, betraying Emily's original poems. I I don't know any other way to say that. Um, Let me just quote Mabel Todd herself. Their carelessness of form exasperated me. I could always find the gist of meaning, and I admired her strange words and ways of using them, but the simplest laws of verse-making she ignored, and what she called rhymes grated on me. So she said she, quote, improved them. She wrote, I changed words here and there in the 200 to make them smoother. Mr. Higginson changed very few and put titles to them. If Emily could come back from the grave, she would have probably done it right then, because Mr. Higginson and Mabel Todd proceeded to edit the Dickens out of it. They gave poems titles, they corrected spellings, and they changed word choices, they removed a lot of the dashes, added other kinds of punctuation, and really stripped a lot of Emily Dickinson's poetry of its original qualities that made it so unique. You know, they quickly found a publisher that was willing to take on the project after they had so painstakingly transcribed and then altered Emily's work. Two months before the first 200 poems were to be published by the Roberts Brothers firm of Boston, Mr. Higginson wrote an article in the Christian Union, sort of an introduction to the world of both Emily's poetry and the poet herself. Such a sheaf of unpublished verses lies before me, he said, the life work of a woman so secluded that she lived literally indoors by choice for many years and within the limits of her father's estate for many more, who shrank from the tranquil society of a New England college town. But yet I am startled by what she was able to dredge up from, and I quote, this secluded inland life. And in that article, he published a few of her poems They were changed from how Emily had written them. He compared her poetry as it was originally written to vegetables that they pulled out of the ground and they still had dirt on them and stones and were covered with morning dew and had to be cleaned before presentation. Wayward and unconventional. So I'm not sure what he was doing here. Was he hedging his bets if it if it didn't go over well, he, with his name attached to it, would still come up smelling like roses because after all, he had explained that they were awful raw 
and he didn't have to explain how much he had fixed them. I don't know. I don't know what to think of what happened to Emily's poetry in this first edition. But when it came out, it came out to great acclaim. People loved it. And I keep quoting Jane Austen, but, you know, these are poems in a style entirely new. Even after the editing, people really, really took to them. The concepts within them really struck people, um, made people cry, exhilarated them. How about this fan letter from a man named Samuel G. Ward, an extraordinarily wealthy poet, transcendentalist, banker, incidentally, co-founder of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Mm -hmm. I am, with all the world, intensely interested in Emily Dickinson. No wonder six editions of her poems have been sold. Every copy, I should think, to a New Englander. She may become world famous, or she may never get out of New England. She is the quintessence of Puritan descent. We came to this country to think our own thoughts, with nobody to hinder. We conversed with our own souls till we lost the art of communicating with other people. Such prodigies of shyness do not exist elsewhere. She was the <laughs> she was the lone voice out of the Puritan wilderness. Perhaps it was the success of their first book, but when the sequel was about to come out, the second grouping of poems that they were working on, Higginson sort of nervously but firmly told told Mabel Todd that she should, and I quote, alter as little as possible now that the public's ear is opened. The second book came out to great acclaim, and such was the clamor for more, more, more Emily Dickinson that Mabel Todd actually went out on a lecture circuit to do readings and um, publicity for the book. Her ownership and um, claim upon the work of Emily Dickinson started to rile Emily Dickinson's actual family quite a bit. Um, They felt like they had sort of been, I don't know, tricked, um, taken for a little bit of a ride or dismissed in the whole endeavor. In fact, Higginson bowed out after the second volume, really not wanting to get into the middle of sort of a family squabble of this nature, uh, especially when he was so close to the original author. All by herself, Mabel edited a collection of Emily Dickinson's letters. And then right after that, yet another volume of, of poems. A couple of years after that third volume of poetry came out, Mabel Todd demanded that she be given another piece of land off of the Dickinson property, saying that she was owed it due to her unpaid work on the volumes of poetry and that the family had placed this great project in her hands and she had expected no compensation. And certainly this is the least that they could do, etc. And really that is when the family feud exploded again. It was an extraordinarily vituperative lawsuit between the two families and As the court sided with the Dickinson family in this dispute, Mabel Todd decided that her involvement with the whole lot of them was going to be over. And she basically locked up the rest of the Emily Dickinson poems that were in her possession and letters and let them sit for 30 years. Like, if I'm not going to have them, nobody's going to have them. And there they sat. 
In the meantime, Vinny died, Mr. Higginson died, and also Susan Dickinson all died. And in that time period, lest we forget, Susan had a large quantity of Emily's poems, all her own, that had been sent to her from Emily. So when her mother died, Susan Dickinson's daughter, Martha, had in her own possession, having inherited it, and also the poems that were still in Vinnie's possession that she hadn't given over to Mabel, she had a large collection of her aunt's poetry. And she began to work on releasing those poems. So there are at least six editions of poetry from that collection edited by Martha. She did not title the poems. She did not change the wording and the rhymes. The slant rhymes were back. She did not remove the dashes. Um, She was so angry, um, also an anger inherited from her mother and the rest of the family, that her aunt's reputation and um, persona, and in fact, her work had been so changed from what it had been, that Martha actually wrote several books as, quote, the one person now living who ever saw Emily Dickinson face to face. And that kind of brought Mabel out of retirement. Like, oh yeah. And the family feud just continued for decades here. Mabel Todd and her daughter Millicent determined to come out with a fourth book of poetry from the poems that she still had in her possession that had never made it into another book. And although they worked tirelessly on it, Mabel Todd did not live to see that book finished. That was actually completed by her daughter Millicent and published. So by this time, due to the dueling publishing powerhouses, most of Emily's poems were now in the public eye. They were now in hardcover print, um, ready for public consumption. However, her work was never collected in one place until 70 years after her death. There was a man named Thomas Johnson who basically went back to the originals and erased those decades of editing and word replacements and punctuation deletions that had been the stock in trade of the Todd faction and sort of refreshed. He's the man I talked about before that was so diligent about analyzing her handwriting. Um, he's, he is a diligent, diligent guy. He um, attempted to put them in some sort of chronological order, which was something that hadn't ever been done before. I think that um, similar to when we talked about the Fitzgeralds, Zelda Fitzgerald and F. Scott Fitzgerald, there are people who have studied Emily Dickinson their whole life that um, absolutely think Mabel Todd did the right thing, was the person that brought Emily Dickinson out of obscurity, worked her whole life to make sure that happened. And then, of course, there's the equally flag-waving and serious anti-Mabelites who can't see how anyone could ever like her, um, that she changed the narrative to fit her own um, agenda, that she erased Sue out of spite um, as her lover's legal wife and only obstacle to her happiness. Um, It gets really fiery. Um, The story of what happened to Emily's poems after her death actually is 
so involved and so much back and forth that I am literally going to rem- to recommend a book right now if this is the part of the story that you are the most interested in, a book called After Emily, Two Remarkable Women and the Legacy of America's Greatest Poet by Julie Dobrow. And that will give you more detail. It actually tells the story of Mabel Todd and her daughter, Millicent. So um, read that if you would like some details about the drama. I don't think Emily would have liked one bit of any of it, by the way. And you know what? That'll actually take us right into media. How about that? So I've already recommended the one book. And Susan did record her media recommendations before she departed to Connecticut. So I will play that for you in just a moment. But let me just go ahead and list the rest of the books that I have so that I can play her recommendations. There is a personal problem I have with a lot of books about Emily Dickinson, and that is their tendency to overanalyze the poetry. What does it mean? What does this symbol mean? This and that. And I honestly can't bear it. (laughs) I like song lyrics think about poetry. If you're in a state of mind to be receptive to the sentiment, you're going to get it. You could listen to a song a hundred times and then You have a breakup and that song suddenly touches your heart in a way and it makes grief swell up in the back of your throat and and it's just something about you has changed. The words haven't changed and I think the same thing about Emily Dickinson's poetry. This is the poem of Emily Dickinson's that I remembered during a critical moment in my life after my mother had died and I was home. Um, the neighbors had brought over ham and and people were coming to dinner and I had to go to the store and and potatoes had to be cooked and just like there were lots of things to do. We had to make trips here and choose this and select that and decide what to read and where things would be. And, and this poem really struck me. The bustle in a house, the morning after death, is the solemnest of industries enacted upon earth. The sweeping up the heart and putting love away, we shall not want to use again until eternity. And this is just my interpretation that, you know, in addition to all the physical things, the actual literal bustle, you have a bustle inside your mind and inside your heart. Where do the feelings go? Where do you put them? You know, as the saying goes, grief is just love with no place to go. And you have to kind of decide what to do with it. Um, Honestly, that one will stay with me forever. But it's just because... It's something that I experienced personally, and it is the song lyric that gets me, you know, at that particular time. And so when I was reading this book in particular, I had to skip a lot of it because there was a lot of analysis of Emily's poems. Some people love that, love it, have spent whole careers analyzing her poems and um, dissecting them to death, in my opinion. However, I don't even want to stamp on someone's awesome, you know, passion. Um, For me, this book is hard to get through. This by no means means that you shouldn't read this book. I found it very, very, very valuable. Um, It is well written. It is one of the absolute preeminent books about Emily Dickinson, and I, um, I can recommend it. So, Um, 
don't let my distaste for analysis put you off. You will um, likely enjoy it very much. Emily Dickinson by Cynthia Griffin Wolf, which, by the way, is big enough that you can press flowers in if you are so inclined. A reference back to part one of our coverage of Emily Dickinson. Um, my favorite book is These Fevered Days, 10 Pivotal Moments in the Making of Emily Dickinson by Martha Ackman. Um, love it. Not a complete biography, but man, does it hit the highlights. And it is written in a very personal style. Also, Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life by Marta McDowell, which tells the story of Emily Dickinson through the prism of the changing seasons in her garden. This author, which I didn't realize when we did Beatrix Potter, also wrote Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life. So I am going to go look for that. I loved this book very, very much indeed. Two more really quick. Uh, the World of Emily Dickinson by Polly Longsworth, which is more of a um, coffee table book. And why I say that is it's mostly photos and other illustrations of the people and places that were the most important to Emily Dickinson in her life. And um, you can see what everybody looked like. Spectacular. Last but not least, although it is the smallest, smallest book, I love this book so much. I think I'm going to buy it. It is a book called Emily Dickinson Envelope Poems, and they reproduce a significant portion of Emily's fragments written on envelopes in her original handwriting. And then um, on the opposite page, they write it in typography for easier reading. But they leave all the punctuation, they leave the spelling errors, they um, leave the words however randomly they were placed on the page. Um, pretty cool. Pretty cool. There's a large version of this little book called The Gorgeous Nothings. Also the work of Marta Werner and Jen Bervin. But this book is so amazing to me. So there are serious, serious poems in there. Some that make... Um, that do hit me in the way that a lyric will hit you after a significant event. And then there's some that need to be on Twitter. And I quote, there are those who are shallow intentionally and only profound by accident. See, Emily is one of us. Really quick, I want to recommend um, a movie called A Quiet Passion starring Cynthia Nixon. It is heavier and quieter than the lively, new, <laughs> spectacular that is Dickinson on Apple Plus, which Susan absolutely loves. I have not got really past episode one. Susan wants to talk about it, so I suppose I need to watch the rest of that series. And I actually look forward to a lively discussion with her about that when she comes back. So um, I know Susan will recommend that you go see Dickinson. So um, do that. And then also watch A Quiet Passion. A few links before I throw it to Susan's media recommendations. I have to be honest with you, these links are probably not going to be up on the website for a little while. But nevertheless, here they are. Don't miss the Emily Dickinson Museum.org. That should be easy enough to remember. That is your one-stop shop for many, many, many facets of Emily's life from her fashion to the house to her style of poetry to 
what happened to the poems after her death, etc. There is an Emily Dickinson lexicon online that goes through all of her word choices and the definitions and how she used them. And I also don't want you to miss on Google Books the entirety of The American Frugal Housewife by Mariah Child. So interesting. Such a window into another time. Susan's obituary that she wrote for her friend and to lighten it up a little bit, a manifesto slash informational website about the technique and history of pressed flowers. And now let me play Susan's media recommendations. I know you, Beckett, are going to have talked about the biggie books, but the ones that I don't know if you had that I just absolutely adored were... Uh, The first was Shaggy Muses, The Dogs Who Inspired Virginia Woolf, Emily Dickinson, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Edith Wharton, and Emily Bronte by Maureen Adams. They're short biographies, but they're focused on the relationships of these authors with their dogs. And so in Emily's case, it was Carlo. Very charming. I read all of them because I don't have a dog, but I really have coveted a dog recently. (laughs) I don't know why. The book that I loved so much that I read two entries in it went on um, a book, (laughs) a bookseller site and bought it for myself because I was so charmed by this book. It's called Poems to See. A comic artist interprets great poetry by Julian Peters. He did a couple of Emily's poems because I could not stop for death. Um, It was like a pencil drawing. It was really moody. He did Hope is a Thing with Feathers. And uh, it was just he every single one of these poems. There was also poems by uh, Maya Angelou, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Poe, Langston Hughes, a whole bunch of them. But each of these poems is drawn in a different style. And so not only is he taking poetry, interpreting it to give it meaning, but then he's taking how he feels about it and assigning it a type of art, you know, a type of style. And I just love this book so much. So it's Poems to See By. It's a great one, I think, for kids because it reads like a graphic novel or a graphic nonfiction or, well, no, it wouldn't be fiction. Yeah, you know what I mean. Uh it reads like that. So I I really, really, really like that one. And I'm just heartbroken that we're not talking about Dickinson, the television show. So maybe we can do that another time. Okay? Okay. Mwah. Thanks. That will do it for our preliminary coverage of Emily Dickinson. Remember that I have plans when Susan gets back to re-record this entire discussion with Susan as it nearly broke her heart to have to not finish this. Um, And so we're going to replace this audio most likely with a Susan and Beckett conversation. So await that. (laughs) The unusual format of this particular show has made it a little awkward to do my usual closing So you know the drill. If you liked what you heard today, um, go ahead and leave a review for us wherever you listen to podcasts. And more importantly, tell a friend about a particular episode that you think that they would like. 
Very exciting news. You know, we have been planning and preparing for our trip to London for two years, and we are cautiously optimistic that it is finally going to happen this year. And now we have something new planned for October, specifically October 16th to the 23rd of this year. We are going to take a History Chicks field trip to New England and see things from the Newport mansions to getting on a boat to Walden Pond to the house of Louisa May Alcott and a walking tour of history in Boston. So there's a lot going on. I haven't even mentioned half of it. To find out more details and to book your travel with us, you need to go to likemindstravel.com, hit group tours, and then read about the History Chicks field trip to New England. It just became live and this is the first time we will ever announce it. So I'm so excited for that and I hope to see you there. The end song this time is Certain Death by Brad Sachs. Um, And I would like to leave you with this end quote, a little piece of advice from Emily Dickinson herself. Let us strive together to part with time more reluctantly, to watch the pinions of the fleeting moment until they are dim in the distance and the new coming moment claims our attention. Thanks for listening. Bye.